Welcome to the Buckhead Church Podcast. At Buckhead Church, we are for Atlanta because we believe that God is for Atlanta. And these days, it's more important than ever to be known by what we're for. And we hope this podcast helps you in your life and faith. We want to help you find greater hope with fewer regrets because we are for you. If it's your first time with us, head over to buckheadchurch.org slash new so we can meet you and send you a free For Atlanta gift on us. If you're not already receiving weekly emails from us, make sure to head to our website, scroll to the bottom, click stay informed and sign up today. The best way to keep up with everything going on is to follow us on social media, subscribe to our YouTube channel and download our free Buckhead Church app. But most importantly, I hope the following episode inspires you to take the next step forward in your faith journey this week. Enjoy. I first want to say welcome. Glad you're here in the room today. We're continuing a series. If you're not in the room with us, if you're at one of our uh, local churches in the Atlanta area, we're glad you're joining us. Uh, if you're one of our strategic partners, we're always thrilled to have you uh, as a part of this, this sort of global church as it's growing. And if you're joining us online, either because you couldn't make it to a local church or you don't have one, we're so glad you're able to join us and connect with us. Last week, we started a, a new uh, series of messages. And uh, last week, we began by talking about misinformation and all the misinformation that goes around in our world. And sometimes it's information that we thought we could trust or it came from a source we thought we could trust, only later to find out that source uh, didn't actually know what they were talking about or they, they made a mistake or, uh, or they had the wrong data or, or whatever the, the case may be. It feels like a good information helpful information, information that matches up with what we talked about last week with reality is sort of a difficult thing to come by in our world. And the goal of this series is to discover how and where to find reliable information from, specifically answers, but not just like in terms of the news cycle in the world, but to life's most important questions. Questions like, who is God? And who am I? And what's the best way to live? These are the questions we're focusing on in this series and talking about finding the best sort of information that reflects the reality of uh, or the truth of these questions. Um, We're using an ancient story, in fact, the most ancient of stories as a lens through which to look at this. And it has remarkable insight into uh, the truth of these questions. Uh, We spent some time last week unpacking the Hebrew creation narrative, or as some of you know, the the Hebrew uh, or the, the creation story that involves Adam and Eve in Genesis. And if you weren't here, um, I acknowledge, like, I, I don't want to necessarily have a debate about its historicity, whether it's literal or whether it's metaphorical or whether it's mythological. Um, that's a discussion that's worthy. It's just not the point of this discussion. And, and we could talk about that. Um, but the reality is that's just a debate about genre. What I want to talk about is the meaning of the story, because the value of a story is in its meaning. And one of the things we discovered last week is that false ideas have an origin, and, and we discovered a little bit why we're prone to believe in them. And it all began with a question in the garden. And the question was, did God really say? The serpent came and when he came to attack Eve, he didn't attack her physically. He didn't try to bite her or wrap her up. It, it was, he attacked her with an idea. And the idea was, can God really be trusted? Like, did he really say, and it, is what he said really true? And, and, and he, he, he made this attack with this idea, trying to attack her trust in the ultimate authority of God. 
as the source of truth or the source of reality as it relates to her life in this new world that she'd been placed in. And, and what, what we said last week was that if the enemy can get us uh, to trust our own inner t- intuition as an accurate compass for the best way of life or uh, about the reality of life or the truth of the way we should live our lives, if he can get us to trust our own inner intuition, he has us. And we talked last week, I drew some circles. In fact, somebody told me, you really like to draw circles. I'm gonna draw some more circles today. I did draw a book last week, by the way. So it wasn't just circles, but um, I drew three circles on the screen. And I talked about, uh, we sort of mapped out what happened in the story. There was a threefold strategy of this serpent. And it was, he presented a deceptive idea, which is what he does. He feeds us deceptive ideas that play into distorted desires uh, in our lives. And they lead us to destructive behavior. You know, did God really say, and, and, and okay, you, can't, you can eat from some of the fruit, but you're not allowed to eat the one in the middle because you'll die. You're not going to die. If you eat of it, you'll be like God. And that, that's the desire. She wanted to be like God. And this deceptive idea played in this distorted desire. And she became the God of her own life, disregarding the ultimate authority of the God. And she decided to eat. And So did the man, and it led to behavior that was destructive for their lives. We left off last week with this question. The question around all of this is, who is God? Who is God in your life? Specifically, the more more poignant question we finished with was, who is your God? This is not like, who is God? Like, which one of the gods is the God? Uh, That's a a, a worthy discussion. but, But in general, you all have a God. We all have a God in our lives. Who is the God of your life? Who's the ultimate authority? See, this is the first domino in answering all the other questions. It actually impacts how we answer all the other questions. We'll come back to that. But last week, we, we, we finished with this idea that, that um, you need to answer, you need to owe it to yourself to be honest with yourself about who the ultimate authority in your life is regarding what's true and what's right and what's the best way to live. Who determines for you who's the ultimate authority when it comes to cultural ideas that are pressing in on us or that are being broadcast in our world and they're being debated in our world? Who, what's the ultimate authority that determines what's true about those cultural ideas or about the feelings in your heart and, and how you should sort those out and, and how, to, how to sort those out and respond to those in healthy ways or What's the best way to live out your life given your temperament and your time in history and your gifts and your abilities and your relationships? Who's the ultimate authority of your life day by day, moment by moment, minute by minute? So today, here's what I wanna do. I wanna shift a little bit and I wanna, I wanna shift to our second question. It's connected to the first. We'll come back to that in a few minutes. But um, the, the, the first question was, who is God? The second question is, who am I? Who am I? And, and people have been trying to answer this question for a, a long time as it relates to the human individual. There's lots of personality assessments you can take that are out there. There's lots of different ways we could, we could uh, decipher this. But what I wanna do is today, I wanna, I wanna look at it from a, a scientific perspective and try and show you how what we've discovered in science actually matches up extraordinarily what this, with what the scripture teaches. Um, the, there's something that uh, uh, or psychologists excuse me, uh, refer to as mental maps. 
And these mental maps are developed at a very young age uh, when we're growing up. They, they, they begin to be developed um, early on in our lives through our experiences. And, and mental maps are, are simply a web of ideas. It's the web of ideas through which we look at the world. It shapes our, what, what uh, philosophers call our worldview. You've probably heard that term before. And it's through this lens, and, and again, whether it's psychology or sociology or philosophy, they all have different terms, but they're trying to describe that everybody sees the world through a different lens. And when we look through that lens, we operate based on our interpretation of what we see in the world. And you have mental maps that have been formed in your life that you follow. It's this map in your mind that you follow as you make decisions throughout your life. And they're shaped both directly and indirectly. They're shaped directly through teaching in your childhood and, and as you grow up, through lessons that are learned uh, in, in experiences that you have. But they're also uh, taught to us indirectly. You, you observe things. You, you have certain models of behavior in your life. And directly and indirectly, these men, mental maps are shaped in our lives. Now, here, here's where this becomes problematic. Um, you may or may not know this, that every single day, um, each one of us... Uh, in America, you absorb about 10,000 messages on average each and every day. 10,000 messages come into your mind each and every day. That's just your exposure to ideas uh, in the world. These things are shaping our mental maps. They're shaping the mental maps uh, of the next generation. And one psychologist noted uh, three major problems with this that we don't really pay attention to in our world. The first one is actually that, that we're not paying attention enough. We're not paying attention enough to the, the things that are shaping our mental maps. And some of us, we know this because I'm convicted of this all the time. I, I'm, I don't know that, that I'm paying attention enough to the things that are shaping the mental maps of my kids. You, you know, you have a certain amount of time with your kids and you're trying to teach them a way and you're trying to teach them what you think is the way and how to grow up and you're trying to shape them into like being good humans, right? But you're... you're your input into their life with the 10,000 messages they receive every day is just such a small slice of what's impact, impacting and shaping the mental maps that they're creating about how they should live out life in the world. When psychologists say, we're not paying enough attention. We're, not only that, we're not thinking critically enough about the things that are shaping our mental maps. We're not thinking about the implications of of. What happens if we begin to adopt these ideas and these beliefs and they shape our worldview? What happens then? What's, the, what's downstream from those things? And then lastly, we're not being intentional enough. Not only about the new ideas that we adopt that are shaping our mental maps, but the, the old ideas that we need to leave behind. There are so many people that have toxic maps and toxic ideas that have shaped their mental maps from the past that need to be shed. They need to be left behind. They're just wrong. They're just not good information. It's, it's, it's not, it doesn't match up with reality, yet they're still part of our mental maps that shape where we're headed in life. Now, one of the most common um, examples of this was actually observed, because this isn't new, by a man named Blaise Pascal, who was a, a mathematician, a philosopher, a theologian, a brilliant man in the, in the 17th century, in the mid-17th century. Um, and this is what he said. Blaise Pascal said this. He said, people almost invariably arrive at their beliefs not on the basis of proof, but on the basis of what they find attractive. I want you to think about this. The question is not, is it true as to whether I'm gonna adopt it in my life or not? It's not whether it's true or not. It's, do I like it? 
How, how do I feel about it? How does it make me feel? And this is why marketing strategies and political campaigns work, right? Uh, they're trying to feed you messages that you'll feel good about or that'll make you feel good or that will line up with something that you desire or you want, whether you should desire or want that thing or, or not. I'm not debating, but they're trying to line up with something like that. And the message, the importance of the message of whether it's true or not is not important. It's does it connect with you? And the more attractive the idea, the more power one has to dictate our behavior simply by influencing what's in our mind. This is what we talked about last week. It's just like as, as in the, the garden story. Oh my goodness, I'm failing. This is not going well. Okay, I just, Andy's gonna be back in a couple of weeks, so it'll be fine, I promise. Um, I wanna take us back. This is where we left off in the garden story. They disregarded God. They, they ate the fruit, and after they ate the fruit, here's what happened. Then their eyes, the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. This was their response. This was their reflexive response to what had happened. And then the man and his wife, they heard the, the, the Lord God, that sound of the Lord God, as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. This is the Lord God that created them, that, that enjoyed them, that gave them purpose and pleasure and power in the garden when he gave them instructions, said, hey, fill the earth and rule over it. I'm gonna give you power to multiply. I'm gonna give you power to rule over the world. And, and I, I want you to enjoy your life. And I, I want what's best for you. And after creating them, he said, this is good. This is the same God. They heard him walking in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees in the garden. Now, there's a lot going on there as if God doesn't know where they are in the trees. I, I, there's a lot we could unpack there. But he, here's, what, here's what ultimately happened. Their mental map of reality had been twisted. It had been distorted to which now they believe that because of what they've done, that God's gonna approach them a certain way. And so they're hiding in their shame and their guilt. These are new ideas that have come into their mind that, that play, into their, their, uh, play against their desire to wanna be loved and to wanna be accepted. And so they go and they cover up and they hide. And mankind has been doing it ever since. This is what we do when we sin. We cover up and we hide. Now, I, I wanna... I wanna unpack a little bit. I want to jump to the New Testament today because the Apostle Paul, uh, he actually addresses this. What happens when our mental maps of reality get, get twisted? They get, all, they, they, they get messed up. And, and I want us to listen to and unpack these words um, as he's, he, what he's really doing is pulling aside a group of new Jesus followers uh, in, in Rome. He's writing a letter to the Romans. If you have a Bible, I'd love for you to open it to Romans uh, chapter 12. Um, but he's pulling this group of new Jesus followers aside because their mental map of reality has been twisted. Now, you may have experienced this before. I want to set you up for what you're about to experience with the Apostle Paul. You've had somebody pull you aside before in life, no doubt. Maybe it was a parent, maybe it was a coach, maybe it was a mentor, maybe it was a friend, and somebody was like, hey, let me give you a, and what did they even say? Let me give you a dose of, okay, I'm doing better, a dose of reality, 
Let me give you a dose of reality. Here's the way things are. You're, you're missing it. You don't understand. Like you're operating. I, when I was a, uh, early, I was an underclassman uh, in high school. And I, I, I fortunately made the varsity team. But the unfortunate part was that our coach sort of had this, this hey, everybody pays their dues. And the upperclassmen were, got the playing time. They were the starters. And early in the season, I was pretty disgruntled because um, I was pretty sure, um, actually, no, I wasn't pretty sure. I knew I was better than some of the people that were playing ahead of me. I was dealing with other issues in that point in my life. And I just felt like the coach doesn't know what he's doing. Like, this is just like, this is not how you win games. Clearly he doesn't want to win. I'm here to win. Um, competition is one of my highest strengths in the strength finder test. Thank you, Marcus Buckingham. Um, but I, I just, I wanted to win. And I'm like, we're not going to win with this group of people on the field. And, you know, I was, again, I had other issues at the time. But so I, I began, this began to sort of come out of me. And, and at times I would react, I would say things, or, and I was a little bit of a prankster from time to time. Anyway, I don't have time to tell you the whole story. I did something in practice that day that became very memorable, and, um, and even the coach thought it was funny. Um, but it was fairly distractive, uh, distracting to, to what was, he was trying to accomplish with the team. And, and uh, I don't know if you know this, but in high school soccer, if you know anything about soccer, there's yellow cards and there's red cards. The yellow card's a caution. The red card is you're out of the game and your team loses a player for the rest of the game. But you get a yellow card, it's a warning. And if you get two of those, you get a red card, you're out. And so in the middle of practice, I, I do something that, and everybody laughs and even the coach thinks it's funny and sort of jokingly, he goes, all right, Thomas, that's a yellow card. And I blurred out reflexively, what are you gonna do? Take me out of the game? Because I wasn't playing in the games. I was sitting on the bench and the whole team blurted out in laughter, except the coach. And not surprisingly, the next day when I showed up at practice, I had a little note. There was an invitation uh, in my locker to come to the coaches meeting before practice. And when I got to the coaches meeting, I sat down and it was very cordial. My coach was just like, hey, so I want to talk about yesterday. I want you to understand how, how things work. Like, because you have a choice whether you want to be here or not. But here's how things work. I am sovereign when it comes to this team. I am the coach. You are a player. And, and I get to decide. And if you're not okay with that or you don't like that or you don't think what I'm doing, you don't have to be here. But as an underclassman, you're not only new, but you, it's a privilege for you to be on this team. And you have an opportunity to earn your way into playing time and into a starting lineup. But you just got here. And, and, and I think this is sort of what the Apostle Paul is doing. These new Jesus followers, they just got here and they love Jesus. They love the message of, of God's forgiveness and they've embraced that. And they're just gonna go do whatever it is that they wanna do disregarding everything else. And the apostle Paul starts this way. He says, therefore in Romans chapter 12, I urge you, this word urge, it literally means to call to one side or to pull them aside. This is the Apostle Paul, I imagine, like sometimes I've done my, my little boys. I grab them by the collar. Actually, sometimes I grab them by the ear and I just drag them up. Hey, come here, come here, come here. We need to have a conversation really quick. I, I, need, I need you to listen to me. He says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, let me give you some context for this. We're family, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, very first thing, a part of your mental map needs to be that there's a God in the world and he has been merciful towards you. And he has been merciful towards me. You've received his mercy, him speaking to these new Jesus followers. You've received his mercy. And so everything I'm about to say, everything I'm about to tell you, I want you to keep in mind, keep in the forefront of your mind, keep as a part of your mental map that God has been merciful to you. In view of God's mercy, I want you to live your life or, or to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. 
Now, they knew a lot about sacrifices, both in the pagan religions and the Jewish religion. People made sacrifices. It was normal. They would sacrifice animals. They would sacrifice things. And oftentimes they would be consumed in a fire. And so these things were given away. You, you made sacrifices. But this idea of a living sacrifice, this was a new thing. He's basically saying, if you want to have a, a, a sacrifice that's pleasing to God, it's acceptable worship. It's not just about singing songs or giving offerings. I mean, that's a part of worship. That's an expression of worship. That's not worship. Worship is how you live. That's what worship is. And so he says, with that in mind, God's mercy for you. He's asking you to sacrifice because of his mercy. He's asking you to make sacrifices in the way you live. And here's how you do this. He says, do not be conformed to, or do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now he's gonna compare and contrast two things. He says, do not be conformed, which is one option. You can be conformed or you can conform or you can be transformed. Do not be conformed, but be transformed. One is passive. Conformed is to be passive. You don't have to do anything really uh, to be conformed. It's like when you, when you pour liquid into a container. That liquid takes on the shape of what's in the container. It's passive, and it's conformed to what's in there. And this is the, the, another translation says, don't copy the behavior of the people in this world. It's like, like, look, you weren't created to be a copy. God has something unique for you. And being a copy is mindless. It, it, it's, it's passive. It's, it's not intentional. Don't, don't do that. Don't just be conformed to what you see around you. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to take an active role. I want you to take an active role in being transformed in being renewed, in being restored, in being changed. I want you, and this, see if this connects with some of you, I want you to channel your inner Chip and Joanna Gaines, and I want you to restore something in your mind. Like you're, if you didn't catch that, you're a fixer-upper, and I'm a fixer-upper, and you need some fixing up, and you're gonna have to do that by restoring. It's gonna have to be intentional. You're gonna need to get a plan together. There, there's, there's two options. You can either be conformed or you can be transformed. Um, but make no mistake, we are all being formed. You're being formed. You're in the middle. We're all engaged. We're in the middle of, of what's known as a formation process. You're in a formation process in life. You didn't choose it. It chose you. You're in a formation process. And in the Christian world, some of you are familiar with this. If you're new to faith, you, you may not have heard this phrase, but um, there's a phrase called spiritual formation. And it's Christians use this uh, as a term for what, what grows people or forms people into the likeness of Jesus. This is how we become more and more like Jesus is, is, is that process described as spiritual formation. But here's what you need to understand. This is not just a religious thing. This is a human thing. And we actually now know from science, science better explains for us exactly how this happens. And it's actually related to the way our mental maps are formed. So I need you to bear with me for a minute or 10 or so. I want to describe to you just for a second from a scientific perspective, how this works. Now, I love neuroscience. I'm a hack at it. Um, I know I'm a dork. My my wife's told me that many times when when I talk about stuff like this. Um, She means it in a very kind way, Um, but and and loving, a very loving and kind way. But, But it's fascinating to me how the, the mind works. And in, for, for a really long time, uh, scientists 
have been trying to describe uh, and, and define, honestly, the relationship between three things. The relationship, and it's, it's to the question, who am I? The relationship between the mind, the soul, and the body. And what's the relationship between these things? The mind being uh, our thoughts. These are the, the things that you think in your mind. The, the soul being the immaterial part of you, which, which may be a new word. Um, we're gonna talk more about the soul next week. Um, and then there's the body, the physical uh, nature of who we are. Now, here's what's fascinating. The old model said that there's, there's, there's a connection between the three, but there's no hierarchy. In the, in the old model, we, the scientists used to believe that, that there was some relationship, but, but there wasn't any hierarchy in it. Now, there was little debate um, for those of you who don't, do know something about uh, uh, neuroscience, there was little debate that there was a part of the body uh, that is the central nervous system, CNS, which primarily is driven by the brain. So what, what hasn't been debated is that the central nervous system or, or the brain actually controls the function of the body. It dictates uh, the, the, the operations of the body. But here's where the debate is. The debate is, does the mind control the brain, which is a part of the body, it's physical, part of the body. Does the mind or our thoughts control the physical nature of our brain or does the physical nature of our brain dictate what comes into our mind? And literally, this has been, this has been debated by, by really, really smart people, way smarter than me, for, for not just dozens of years, but for, for decades but just a few decades ago, the majority of scientific thought who used to believe that the mind was fixed, a fixed hardwire machine, um, began to change its, its mind. And it began to change its mind because of two primary uh, discoveries. The two discoveries were neuroplasticity and neurogenesis. Now, wait, 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 wait. I can feel your eyes glazing over if that's even possible. I can feel your eyes. I promise it's not that difficult and it's gonna be quick and painless, okay? So neuroplasticity, this is, this is easy. And you're gonna sound so much smarter. You can tell somebody at work tomorrow about this and you're gonna sound so smart. Neuroplasticity, it was discovered in 1948. Neuroplasticity, this is all it means. It's the ability for the physical matter, the physical part of your brain, the gray matter in your brain, the synapses in your brain to change continuously. They can, for, they can be formed and reformed. They, they change continuously during an, a person's life. And then neurogenesis, this, this came later. This actually wasn't discovered till 1998. So think about this, less than 25 years ago, we discovered that every single day you and I wake up with new baby brain cells that are waiting to be molded and to be shaped by the stimulus that comes into your mind. This means that the, the brain physically, it physically changes and morph, morphs the shape of it, the function of it changes on a regular basis. And the primary shaper, the primary change agent to our, our brain cells is not our environment. It's not food, it's not Substances, I mean, those things all impact it. There's no doubt. But the, the primary shaper, the primary change agent is our thoughts. This has been discovered scientifically and proven scientifically that the thing that controls our brain, which is part of our body, is actually the mind. That, that's what's shaping what's, what's 
going on in your body, what's going on in your brain. Dr. Carolyn Leaf, uh, she wrote a book, and it's an amazing book. I would recommend it to you. It's called Switch on Your Brain. It's about a lot of other things, but part of her book is about the intersection between this science and, and faith. And she summarizes the implications of these discoveries in this way. This is what she says. She says, our mind was designed to control our body of which our brain is a part, not the other way around. Matter does not control us. We control matter through our thinking and our choosing. Our thoughts actually change the physical nature of our brains. They create new thought networks. It changes the gray matter. It strengthens and weakens synapses in the brain. Do you know that it even changes your DNA? Those of you who've been around church for a long time, you know that the scripture talks about generational sin and how sin can be passed down from generation to generation. There it is. Science has just told us when you, your DNA is changed by things that come into your mind that you act upon, it changes your DNA. And when your DNA gets passed off to your offspring and to their offspring and to their offspring, it's passed down from one generation to the next. You see, there's consensus. This isn't just a motivational speech anymore. This is, there's consensus that mind is literally over matter. Our, what happens in our mind reigns supreme over the matter that's in our brain and that's in our bodies. Uh, there's a, a guy named uh, Heb, uh, Dr. Donald Heb, and he's a neuroscientist. This is the last piece of science, I'll tell you, because this is, this is, is going to take us where we're going. It's known as Heb's rule. It's, he's often quoted. And Heb's rule says this. It says that cells that fire together, wire together. Cells that fire together, wire together. Here's why this is important. Repetitive thoughts, things that you think about over and over and over. Here's what he's saying. It changes the physical and functional structure of the brain. It creates patterns of thought. And it, those patterns of thought read, lead to reflexive patterns of behavior. This is why I repeatedly get off at the wrong exit on 400 on my way home. It's because I get off at the exit from my old house. We moved seven years ago. I lived in Arizona for seven years. I come back and when I get on 400, if I'm talking on the phone or if I'm listening to music, I'm not paying attention. I get off at the wrong exit. It's happened more than a dozen times since I've moved back here. And the reason is because I had done it thousands of times before. And when I'm driving reflexively, my body just wants to get off the exit when I'm not thinking about that. I'm thinking about something else. It's because of Heb's rule. Those cells had fired together for so long that my body just reflexively wants to respond and follow. This is so important. This is, this, is, this is to the point of today. That means that the ruler of your mind, the ruler of your mind is the ruler of your life. What rules in your mind will take hold of, it will take control of, and it will ultimately determine the direction of your life, the ruler of your mind. Not, not, not just the culture, not just the place, that your environment, not the place that you were, you were put into, the ruler of your mind, the things that control your mind, that's what controls your life. See, this is the difference between developing healthy, life-giving habits that lead to wholeness and human flourishing and the sort of destructive patterns of behavior that end in addiction and brokenness and in our eventual ruin, it all begins with the ideas 
that we put into our mind. This is so powerful. And I believe to all of this neuroscience, the apostle Paul would respond. He would look at all the science. He'd look at all the data and he'd go, told you so. I told you this a long time ago. I told you this 1,700 years ago. And I think Solomon would, would go, well, I, I said it way before that. As a matter of fact, in Proverbs, Solomon says, as a man thinks in his heart, not, not as he feels in his heart, as a man thinks in his heart, this is what we're gonna talk about next week. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. he, he that's what defines who he becomes. And if that's true, I want you to consider this today. Maybe that's why Jesus came as a rabbi, a rabbi as a teacher. This is why Jesus came as a rabbi. He knew how important information, how important ideas and how important truth is. Now he ultimately came to sacrifice his life for the world, but he could have come in any way. He didn't have to come as a teacher. In fact, most people thought he'd come as a political leader, but he came as a teacher. I want you to think, what is a teacher? Especially good teachers. Good teachers are an informational guide for developing mental maps to reality. They try to help shape our mental maps so we can see the reality of how life has worked. This is why we study science and mathematics and history. All of these are indicators of how life actually works, the reality of life. Teachers empower us to live in a way that's congruent with how the world actually works. Now, a few weeks ago, Andy quoted Jesus when he said that, that the truth, he came so that you would know the truth because you can, when you know the truth, the truth will set you free. This is a powerful idea. The truth can set you free. Why? Because the truth actually empowers us. Some of you know this. We're empowered by the truth because the truth actually helps us to live in reality. That's, that's why we're empowered by the truth is because now I can live according to what's true and what's real. I can respond to what's true and what's real. It's not like I'm shadow boxing with something I can't see. I'm responding to real things. Jesus at the same time was essentially saying, yeah, you're empowered by the truth and it can bring freedom. And if you're empowered by truth, then if you're not empowered, you're enslaved. And you're enslaved in unreality in lies, in things that aren't true. You can either be enslaved or you can be empowered. Here's, here's something I, knew, I think Jesus knew. He knew that lies can become true. This is the danger in this. We talked about this last week too. Uh, we talked about how the, the genius of humanity in God's creation of us, is that we can hold unreality and reality in our minds at the same time. This is called imagination. We can imagine something that isn't like the Wright brothers did, and we can work together to bring it into reality, even though it once didn't exist. It's, it's, it's a brilliant thing. The same capacity, John Mark Comer says that it's our genius. It's also our Achilles heel, and here's why, is we can begin to believe things that are unrealities, that are lies, that are never going to become a reality or never should become a reality. But those lies can actually begin to become true. They're not true of us. They're not true of who we are, but the more we live into them, the more they become true. We have a, we have a name for this in our world. We call it a self-fulfilling prophecy. Same thing. This is what this is. It's why when your kids say, I'll never be good at this, you say, don't say that. 
As long as you say you're never gonna be good at this, you'll never be good at this, right? Like you just, you stop them or maybe somebody has stopped you from saying that or, or you always, you say, you know, I always mess up relationships. When somebody should say to you like, look, look, if you keep saying that, you're gonna go into that with that in the forefront of your mind and you're gonna sabotage relationships. You've seen people do this over and over. You, you've heard people say, they'll never change or he'll never change or you'll never change. And if you keep saying that, you're right, they'll never change. For sure, not in your mind but it also might shape and become true of them because of what you're saying. Now, this seems like a, a, ethereal a little bit, and it maybe even seems fairly benign to you, but I want you to consider this reality. Here's a, here's a more poignant example. Some of you, maybe one of you are here today. Somewhere along the way, you picked up or you were taught the idea that you're unlovable. That became part of your mental map, and you probably wouldn't say that out loud. In fact, that's, not, that's, that's a hard thing to say out loud. It's a hard thing to embrace, but you felt like you're unlovable, and you may have learned that through a broken relationship with your parents or maybe through abandonment or through a betrayal of a relationship from a partner or, or from a close friend. Or maybe somebody was unfaithful to you, or maybe your personal failure has taught you that, that you can't, you're not capable of love or being loved. And that repetitive idea, here's what happens. It infiltrates your neurobiology and it shapes your behavior. And because you think that you're unworthy of love, you put up with people treating you in ways that are disrespectful or demeaning or you act in ways that are disrespectful and demeaning. And as you feed your mind that lie over and over and over, if you feed it long enough, tragically, what once started out as a lie begins to become true. And you begin to become the kind of person who's not worthy of loving and respecting. See, this is so important. But there's good news in this. The good news, both according to good biology and good theology that, 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 that match up. We don't have to be afraid of science. Science is the study of how things work in the natural world. God created the natural world. There's congruence between the two. And good biology and good theology says this. It says that you can break that cycle. You can break that label. It doesn't have to define you and it doesn't have to dominate you. See, in our popular culture, we try other therapies, other ways of compensating for things like this. When we don't feel good about ourselves, when you don't feel good about yourself, the world says to you, if you don't feel good about yourself, treat yourself, right? Like that's what we're told. If you don't feel good, that's how you feel better about yourself is you treat yourself, right? And, and, and if you, you don't feel good, you get, a, get a better house, a nicer house and a newer house. One of the white ones with the black trim and the really nice clean inside. Like maybe with the, the new stuff is the gold trim, like indoors. Like get a house like that. Get a nice new car. Get a new job. Find a new spouse or a new partner. You know, change your appearance, you know, go to the gym, get a diet, find some new drip, uh, maybe have a surgery. Like you'll feel better about yourself, right? Like this is, this is what we're told. And I will tell you, sadly, there's some satisfaction, some instant satisfaction in that. You'll feel good for a time, but it's really just a temporary distraction. And you know it. In the end, we all realize that these type of external transformation strategies, they don't work. The truth is, we don't change from the outside in. We change from the inside out. As a matter of fact, we're gonna see uh, next week that the mind not only controls the body, it co controls what's going on in the immaterial side in your heart and in your soul. 
That's what the apostle Paul and Solomon were talking about. But there's one other piece to this. There's two opposing forces in the mind. And these opposing forces, uh, one is known as the father of lies. This is who Jesus warned us against. And the father of lies, uh, his, his goal is, is to steal and to kill and to destroy. And then there's someone else that, that wants to speak into your life. Because this, this father of lies, as we saw last week, represented by the serpent, um, he wants to use deceptive ideas to, de, to play into distorted desires and ultimately lead you to destructive behavior. And Jesus said, I've come. And I've come as the way and the truth and the life. And if you want to find life to the full, that's what I want to lead you to. I want to lead you to life that's to the full. That's why Paul said that we need to take every thought captive because there's two primary influences in the mind, in our thoughts, in our mind. The question is, which one's forming your mind? You're in a formation process. And you can either be conformed or you can be transformed. And you'll either be enslaved in unreality and trying to figure out what in the world is going on in the world. You can't make sense of it. Or you can be empowered by the truth of reality that's delivered to you by the one that, that's come to be the way and the truth and the life. And the, the, the million dollar question for today is, how do I know which one's forming me? I'll tell you, which one is forming you is which one has your attention. This is the question. Who has your attention? Because the ruler of your mind is the ruler of your life. Who are you reading? What do you focus in your mind on day in and day out? What podcasts are you listening to? What are you binging on Netflix? Who are you following? Who are you scrolling? Who, who are the primary thought influencers in your life? You need to think about this. We're, we're not thoughtful enough. We don't think enough about. We're not paying attention enough. We're not critical enough about the things that are shaping the mental maps of our lives. My question is, who are the, who, who are the dominant thoughts in your life that shape what you think about you and think about the world? What are the dominant voices and thoughts from your past that you've carried with you that you need to leave behind that have created toxic mental maps in your adulthood? Here's what's at stake. What's at stake is a grown man who grew up in an achievement-driven home who now believes the only measure of his success is how successful he is at work. It's a woman, a grown woman, who's a perfectionist and believes that because... Her mom was a perfectionist. And because of that, she believes that she has to have it together, all together all the time, or at least appear to have it all together, just to be accepted to others, but not just to others, to be acceptable to herself. It's a young man who grew up without a dad or with maybe an abusive dad. And now he believes that because of that, he never would be or never could be a good dad. It's a young woman who is constantly comparing herself to the phony world of Instagram, which is all it is. 
and comes to believe I'm undesirable or I'm unworthy of love because of what she sees. These influences ultimately shape what you think in your mind. And they shape what you think about you, the way you see yourself, and they are not accurate pictures of reality. You see, what you think about you is fundamentally who you're being formed into. What you think about you is fundamentally who you're being formed into. This is why who is God, that first question is necessarily connected to who am I. They're inseparable. Who is the ultimate authority when it comes to who you are? Who is the ultimate authority that defines reality related to your identity? Who or what has the final word? Is it your title? Is it a relationship? Is it a social status? Is it your net worth? Who's destructively occupying prime real estate in your mind? What if you were to begin to feed your mind with what God says about you? I'll tell you what would happen. These things that God says about you that are actually true, they would start to become a reality in your world. You would bring them into reality because that's what happens when you place them in your mind. But you need to be prepared. The enemy's gonna come at you and he's gonna come at you with the same question, the same old trick. Did God really say? And so when God shows up and he says, you are loved, the enemy's gonna go, did God really say you're loved? I mean, even though you've been living as if, as if God doesn't even exist, I mean, God said you're loved and our answer has to be emphatically, yes, he really did. That's what God said. He said, I'm loved. Did, did God say I, you're forgiven? Are you kidding me? You're, you're, you can't be forgiven. After all that you've done, where you've been, where you were last night, God says you're forgiven for that. Yeah, that's what he said. He said you're a new creation. The past is old and gone. I mean, it doesn't seem too far gone. Yeah, he really did. He said you can be free of the shame and guilt of your past. Oh, yes, he did. He said you can overcome the hurts and habits and hangups that have been holding you back and holding you down. Yes, he really did. I don't get it, but that's what he said. He said, I'm valuable beyond worth. He, he said that I have a hope and I have a future. That's what he said. Did God really say, hold on a second. Sometimes we just gotta stop the enemy and say, hold on, yo, Satan, I I'm gonna let you finish. But, but here's the thing, and so, some of you are tracking with me, not too many of you, but I'm gonna let you finish. But here's the deal. Whatever you wanna question that God said, that God said about me, yes, he really did say it. And because he said it, and he's the ultimate authority on what's true, the truest thing about me is not what my past says about me. It's not what the enemy says about me. It's not what the world says about me. And not, it's not what anyone else wants me to believe about me. What God says about me is what's true about me. Therefore, I will begin to live out the truth of the reality of who I really am, of who I am and what I am, because who I am and what I am is who you say I am. And it's who the reality of who you are is what God says about you. That's who you really are. Let me pray for you. God, I pray for somebody today who's holding on to some toxic beliefs because of an experience or a relationship or words that cut at an early age, that cut deep, that, that were hurting, that were 
that were part of uh, uh, the creation of a mental map for them that wasn't true. And they, they're living in this unreality, holding on to almost, almost covering themselves with this wet blanket because they're holding on to it like, I, I got to compensate for this. I, this is what's true about me, or this was my experience, this is what happened in the past. And I just pray today by the power of your spirit that you would erase those lies from their mind supernaturally in this moment that you would erase those, those lies. And as you erase those minds, those lies, you would replace them in their mind with something that's true, something that's beautiful. What you say about them, the truth about them, the reality of who they really are, because what's most true about us is what you say about us. And may our response be today, I believe. I believe. I believe what you say about me is what's true about me. I choose to believe, I choose to embrace, and I will choose to live out the truth of what you say about me. I believe you, Jesus. Amen. Once again, thanks for listening. If you'd like to hear more messages like this, we've made it super easy. First, you can hit the subscribe button to get these messages on your device every week. Second, you can download our app from iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your apps. Or third, you can check out our YouTube channel. Just search for Buckhead Church and make sure to subscribe. Have a great day.